I talked with uh, your pastor um, Friday, Thursday or Friday, and I asked him about uh, something I would like to share with you, and it will, um, a couple of you, uh, at least years gone by, might have, um, might have been, um, when I shared this before, but I'd like to actually go through in the next few months with you the book of Ruth. Um, Ruth is just a tremendous story, but uh, in the book of Ruth, it's, it's filled with so much uh, gospel, gospel truth, and uh, we see Christ on every page, and it's just a wonderful story. So um, let's begin today with the book of Ruth, chapter 1, and uh, we'll just look at the first six verses this morning. So Ruth... Chapter 1, um, right after the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Ruth chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Kilion died also, both of them. And the women were left of her two sons, and her husband. And then she arose with her daughters in law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. The book of Ruth is so many things, though it's only four short chapters, um, it's filled with so much gospel truth. We will see. The providence of God, for example, working its way through this book, where God is behind the scenes and overtly ordering the steps of his people and doing so many things. If you're familiar with the story, in chapter 2, after Ruth comes back with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she's going to glean in the field, the Bible says it was her hap, that is, she chanced to light upon the field that belonged unto Boaz. And we'll see that was no happenstance, but in fact, God had ordered events and her steps for his specific purpose. The book of Ruth is a story about tragedy and poverty and lostness and redemption. And yet in all of those themes, what we're going to see is grace and and God working in all of those to bring about his perfect will. We'll learn about a gleaning about handfuls of purpose, about the provision that God's law made for the Levite 
marriage, which we'll see is, is monumental in the life of Ruth and Naomi and others as well. We'll see grace. We'll see God's bountiful grace, um, specifically in the life of, of Ruth, but also over, overflowing to many, many others as well. Again, looking forward in chapter 2, um, Boaz, when he realizes that Ruth has, has left everything to be attached to him, uh, he says, The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, unto whose wings thou art come to trust. And the reward that Boaz is, is marking out for Ruth is in fact that relationship with him, but it's, it's foreshadowing those who simply believe and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ himself will be that great reward. We'll see the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ that is traced out in this book with those four, if I can use the word scandalous, women that are in our Lord's um, lineage, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And the fact that Ruth was a Moabitess, as, as our brother read uh, uh, in the reading, the Moabites were not allowed to come into the temple of the Lord for 10 generations. And there was that, that perennial curse upon those people uh, as well. And yet Ruth is in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see in a very practical way what love is supposed to be like. Much of what we define love as in this culture or society is based really on um, human perception, or what we think it's supposed to be. But we're going to see love worked out in this story as, as a, a God-defining definition of love. And of course, that's going to reflect upon the relationship between the believer and God himself. And as I mentioned, there's much of the Lord Jesus Christ in this book, much of the gospel, uh, many parallels uh, uh, to the gospel as we know it now in the New Testament. So next several months, we're going to look at this book. Um, I have uh, this morning six, six uh, headings of the message that I'd like to uh, consider with you. And this really is going to set the stage for, for what's going to open up in this book. And so in the first place uh, this morning, we're going to look at judges ruling. Then we're going to look at Elimelech's sojourning. And then Naomi's mourning, and then God working, God blessing, and Naomi determining. So first of all, the judges ruling. The judges ruling. Immediately when we, we read this book, we understand, we're, we're alerted to the, to the very precarious a context in which this story unfolds. It came to pass, verse 1, it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. The book of Judges marks out a time period in the life of God's people that is very dark, unstable. It was marked by idolatry, apostasy, spiritual darkness, uh, relativism, social ills, civil unrest, anarchy, lawlessness, Every man was doing what was right in their own eyes, the scripture says. That, that last verse in the book of Judges where it says, in these days there was no king in Israel, 
Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That verse is repeated twice, explicitly and four times implicitly in the book of Judges. Everyone was doing what's right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel. And we could spiritually say they did not acknowledge God, uh, Jehovah God himself, as king over that nation. They were living in a, in a stew pot of death. And that the period of the judges lasted about 500 years. A long time. Um, a long time. And, and this book, among other things, is developing and demonstrating that the spiritual condition of Israel had gotten so bad um, that it was the life of the people, the life of the nation. They were starting to reflect the societies and the cultures of the heathen. They had no influence upon society. And if you're familiar with the book of Judges, you know that there were these cycles that happened. God would raise up judges and things would be okay for a while. But then Israel would fall into sin. It always started off with with spiritual sin of lukewarmness and indifference and traditions of men and forgetting God. So then God would raise up Philistines or the Syrians or the Moabites, or he would cause famine or or drought or something to get the people's attention, something to, to chasten them, to get them back to himself. And Israel would be in a very difficult spot, so what would they do? They'd cry out to God for help. And God would raise up a judge, typically a man, not always, but usually mostly a man, to deliver them out of the hands of their enemies, or God would bring about an end of the drought or the famine. And they would get back to that place where everything was good. They would prosper. And of course, what happens when we prosper and we have everything we need? Then they get lazy, spiritually lazy, and they go back into that um, immorality, the apostasy, the, the anarchy, the lawlessness. And that's a very, very tiring Situation to live in. Up, down, up, down, up, down. And again, seven times those cycles appeared in the book of Judges. Let me read just a couple of verses from the book of Judges, chapter 2, and you get the idea. The Israelites forsook the Lord, and they served Baal and Ashtaroth. And so the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he delivered them into the hands of spoilers who spoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hands of those that spoiled them. We see in a very capsulized four verses in chapter 2, this cycle, God describing what is going to happen. Prosperity, ease, peace, rest, apostasy, offending God. Hardship, deliverance, prosperity, again. All because man's inability, man's rebellion against God. Very troublesome time that Elimelech and Naomi lived in. It's really hard to, to live in a society that has all of these 
all of these movements and all of this, this drama and this action that is precipitated by an indifference to God. I mean, think about our society today, a society that is indifferent or antagonistic against God. And for the believer, as we try to live out our life, as, as the Bible says, in quietness and peace so that we can focus on the gospel, it's increasingly difficult and hard. Note the connection. It was in the days that the, the judges ruled that there was no a famine in the land. This was the current temporal judgment that God had brought against Israel. And it's very striking. It's very spiritually striking. I, I trust you know what the name Bethlehem means. House of bread. And in the house of bread, there's a famine. Bethlehem should have been the, the fertile breadbasket that it was. Uh, uh, it was the land that flowed with milk and honey. Um, orchards, all these things, remember, when they came into the land, all of these things were already there producing. And it seems as though the people had, had a short memory. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26 says, God will bring famines to chasten the people. So if you see a famine, the first thing you should say is, are we disobedient? Is God at odds with us? And God said he would bring a famine for one reason. He said it was a call to repentance, a call to seek God, a call to get, get back to get, getting right with God. And Elimelech decides to leave. Undoubtedly within Israel, there were, there were good people, there were God-fearing people, there were true believers there was salt and light sprinkled in and out of the nation of Israel. And they were called not to check out, not to leave, not to escape, not to detach themselves. But they were, they were called to stay and be that leavening influence and be used of God to get the people back. Elimelech, though he's in the midst of, I would say, not a personal chastisement, but a, but a corporate chastisement, it's not as though he had God's direction or God's will to, to as I said, to leave, which is what he did. He should have stayed there. But, but physically, as we look about this famine and we look about God's chastening hand, we, we right away see the spiritual picture the spiritual picture is that there was a famine of the word of the Lord, the word of God, like Amos prophesied. That was the foundational problem. It wasn't just that physical bread was missing. There was a famine for the word of the Lord. That verse in Amos, where Amos prophesied looking forward, same thing happening, I believe, in the days of the judges. God said, I will send a famine in the land, not of bread, nor a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord. They might even go into Moab and they won't find it. God had said repeatedly, I'll send prophets, I'll send the word, I'll send the word, I'll give you the word. But at some point, you don't want the word and so I will withdraw it. And because there was no hearing of the word of the Lord, that spiritual base, that spiritual foundation that kind of, kind of colors the rest of our life and, and causes us to live a certain way and act a certain way, because that foundation was removed, 
and God brought a physical famine, the people were in a mess. And so Elimelech and Naomi, his wife, they're living in very difficult times, very pressing time. We don't want to judge Elimelech for leaving, which I think was wrong for him to leave. But I think, I think the times of the judges was so strikingly hard, so difficult, that we're going to see, we're going to see how, how this affected him and his wife and his family. And then later when they come back, it will still have an effect on them. We'll see that. So the judges were ruling. And that signifies a very bad time to live in that society. Secondly, Elimelech's sojourning. Elimelech decided to leave with his family and go to Moab. Not everybody left. Boaz did not leave. Others did not leave. They stayed. But he picks a spot perhaps for expediency's sake, Moab. And again, as was read, the land of Moab and the Moabites were under the curse of God because of their origins, Genesis chapter 19. And Elimelech, in a very pragmatic way, thinks he's going to sojourn there. That Hebrew word sojourn means to temporarily dwell, to temporarily abide or stay. He thought he would get his family away from the famine and then when food came back and maybe when the spiritual condition got better, then he could move back to Bethlehem. But he did not know what a day would bring. And he did not know he would die in a foreign land and put his family in harm's way, leaving his wife a widow, leaving them homeless, essentially, and 50 miles away. It's a 50-mile journey from Bethlehem to Moab. Elimelech and his family would have crossed the Jordan River. They would have gone over the top of the Dead Sea, heading east. And Bethlehem is about 300 feet above sea level. Moab's about 3,000 feet above sea level. So they had a 3,000-foot climb over 50 miles, which describes the pain, the exertion, the cost, to leave the Lord, to leave God's people, to leave where God has placed his name costs something and it's painful and it's difficult. So they go to Moab. Again, Moab under the curse of God. Were there alternatives? We don't know. We would be speculating. Could he have sent to buy food out of Egypt like Joseph or excuse me, Jacob sent his sons to do. Um, There was other things perhaps they could have done. The famine was severe, but it did not wipe out Bethlehem. The people, they were able to get by on some kind of shoestrings. And I believe that was the Lord's will for them to do. But nevertheless, God is going to use all these events to bring about this great gospel story. While... Elimelech is there in Moab. He evidently had zero influence upon the society of Moab. He, I think, was like Lot, who dwelt in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, Remember, the Bible says Lot vexed his righteous soul. There was like a one-way influence from society and that culture into Lot's life. I think in Moab, it was the same situation where there was a one-way influence from Moab 
to that single family, Elimelech and Naomi. And so he sojourns there with his wife, Naomi, and his two sons. And as soon as he passes away, his two sons marry Moabitish women, which also was against God's word, Deuteronomy chapter 23. And so everything is just getting really, really bad. Elimelech has lost his testimony. He's put his family in harm's way. He thinks he's going to sojourn there temporarily. He ends up dying. There's this, this whole thing is, is so disastrous. And now he dies. He's left Naomi there, bereft of her husband. Her two sons die, uh, Maelon and Kilion. And Naomi is left there with her two daughters-in-law alone. 50 miles away from home, homeless, a widow. And this is the situation that Ruth is coming into. It's a very strange situation if you could put yourself in Ruth's feet for a minute. Marrying into this, this family that has removed 50 miles. You don't know anything about their God, their religion, the covenant people. Her husband dies. The two uh, sons-in-law die. And she is left there with Orpah and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Elimelech's sojourning. He thought it was temporary. Sometimes we try to get out from under the chastening hand of God with a temporary situation and it does not turn out to be temporary at all. Thirdly, Naomi's mourning. Verse three said, Naomi's husband died and she was left of her two sons. They get uh, married. They marry women of the Moabite, uh, Moabite. And then in verse five, Malon and Kilion died, both of them. And the woman that is Naomi was left of her two sons and her husband. The name Malon means sickness. The name Kilion means consumption. Elimelech's name means God is my king. But all three die. And even though we read in one verse all three die, they didn't necessarily all die in a short time span. It might have drug out the mourning and the sadness. And now Naomi is a stranger in a strange land. She's left alone with her two daughters-in-law. It's a very tragic scene. It might have started out well escaping a famine, but now it ends very, very badly. And so I'd like you to think about two vantage points to, to, to think about what should we make of this scene? How are we to understand it? And let's look at all, look first of all at Naomi's vantage point. We know what Naomi thinks about the whole thing because when she gets back to Bethlehem, she says, I am grieved. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. When she comes back, the people say, see her and they say, is this Naomi? You know how troubles and trials and health problems age our body and and make us look different. She was gone at least 10 years and all the people said, is this Naomi? This can't be Naomi. She had changed that much. She said, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She, calls, she says, call me Mara, call me bitter 
because God has dealt very bitterly with me. She says, I went out full. The Lord brought me home again empty. The Lord hath testified against me. God has afflicted me. She had really hard thoughts about God. She had really difficult thoughts about what God had done in the life of her and those closest to her. And these hard sayings were born out of the crucible of life where it was tragic. She did lose loved ones. She was in a difficult place. But she attributed it to God's dealing with her in a very negative way. That's Naomi's vantage point. All of these things happened because God was against her. Much like the patriarch Joseph, when he was about to return for the last time to Egypt. His family was in disarray. His sons were, were in prison. They wanted the youngest son, Benjamin. Joseph said, all of the, Jacob said, all of these things are against me. That's Naomi's view. But what do we think about this scene? Let me give you a different vantage point to think about this scene. Without, and I, I trust you kind of know the story, at least in general, but without Elimelech dying, without Malon and Kilion dying, Ruth never gets to Bethlehem. Ruth never gleans in the field of Boaz. Ruth never marries Boaz. Ruth can never be included in the messianic line. Without these events happening, humanly speaking, God can do anything. He could have used other means. But without these things happening, Ruth never gets to Bethlehem. She never gets to the place where she's going to marry Boaz. That might sound very harsh, but that is what God is doing. God will do whatever he must do to get Ruth to Boaz. God will do whatever it takes to get Ruth to Boaz. God will do whatever it takes to get you to be joined to Christ. God will do whatever it must be done. And, and all of us have different stories of, of testimony of how God used events or people or things, maybe blessed things, maybe difficult things, to get us into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. God would even send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die once, to put away sin forever, to cover us in the blood of Christ, to bring us unto him. And this is what God is doing in the story of Ruth. He's ordering events to get Ruth to Boaz. And it's a wonderful picture of what God will do to get his bride to himself. There's, there's tremendous parallel tracks of divine providence working. God is ordering events. God is working in, in spite of the failure of his people. And this, this view of the Messiah, that the fact that Christ is the object, all of these, these actings and these, these people, they're, they're stepping stones, they're they're metaphors, they're pictures to get us to see the reality of God, God's redeemer in the world, like Boaz, like the spiritual kinsman redeemer, purchasing Ruth to be his bride. 
This is what God will do to save his church, to save his people. And it's not like a chess game where God moves a piece here and then people move a piece here and then God is, God is ordering all events to bring about his perfect will. You know, if you could have been alongside Ruth back in the days of the judges and, and the death of these people and, and Ruth is determining to go back down to Bethlehem, if you could have looked forward and seen everything that God, what God was doing to get you, Ruth, there, it, it would be a mind blower. It would, it would be, we, we couldn't describe it. And yet in God, from God's vantage point and from the spiritual vantage point, it's so perfect. It's perfect timing, perfect events, doing what he must do. Naomi, mourning. Fourthly, God working. God working. How often do we not see God working, and yet God is always working behind the scenes. He is never idle. We see circumstances, we see events, we see drama. Faith sees God's providence working. We as believers, we have our our world and life view. It's faith-based. It's rooted in God. We understand his sovereignty. Like, Like David said, his everlasting covenant is ordered in all things and sure. God's providences, we understand, may not always be good outwardly. They might be bad outwardly, but all things are working together for good. That is the outcome. That is the goal line. We are called to live by faith. So again, even in the midst of Elimelech and his family leaving Bethlehem, going to a place they should not have gone, the deaths, of, of these three men, we understand that in reality that our faith is in God. It's not abstract or theoretical. He's doing something. The book of Ruth starts out in the shadows, in a dark time. A limit like it seems to be living by sight and he's living by touch and, and he relocates to these high plateau of Moab, which is well watered. Everything's good. And yet in the midst of these things, God's will is being worked out in the midst of all these troubles. God might not be perceived, and yet he, in fact, is working. He's working out his purpose. Remember that that saying of of Daniel in Daniel chapter 4, where Daniel said, God does whatever he wants in the army of heaven and on earth below, and none can stay his hand, and nobody can even ask, what doest thou? We can't even say, God, what are you doing? Even though we know God's working all things, at least for us, working together for good. We can't even ask the question, God, what are you doing? God, why are you doing that? I, I, am in, I have this inquisition against you, God. I want to know what you are doing, when, why, how, what the end is going to be. The book of Ruth, if we could be there in that time and just be silent, invisible observers watching all of this stuff happen, as a New Testament believer who understands a little bit about the sovereignty of God, we would just be, it's marvelous how everything works out so perfectly. But for those in that day, and much like us often, sometimes our experience or our physical transcends our faith and our trust. 
because we are in Adam's fallen race and we can give in to sometimes carnal thinking. But all things do work together for good, do they not? To those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Abraham, of course, that great example of faith, being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able to perform. I don't know. I think the scripture is, doesn't paint a complete picture of Naomi, though she has these hard thoughts of God. She never renounces God. She, she knows God's existence. She knows God's, God is working. She knows God has blessed the land with famine. Um, but she's in that in-between place of not having this, this perfect, full fellowship relationship with God, but kind of at a distance because of how she perceives God is working in her life. Dark providences can hide great blessing. Our attitude, of course, should be Romans 8.28. Everything that's bad that happens up to this point, the time of the judges, a famine in the land, escape to Moab, death, the family is left in harm's way, the two sons die, death, can anything good come out of that? Ruth is under a curse. Ruth is a Moabitess. She can't go into the congregation of the Lord until the tenth after the tenth generation. They're actually at this point, there is no hope for Ruth except for one small detail besides the sovereignty of God. Providentially and technically, Ruth has become an Israelite widow. She has become an Israelite widow because she has married an Israelite. And when she comes back to Bethlehem later, she is a widow. And on that basis, she is able to sue her next of kin relative to the Leverite marriage. And the whole a technical context of this story and what God has done with this, this little thing changes her life dramatically and radically. And she is going to have this, this new narrative simply because she was married to this Israelite. Perhaps you've heard the saying, large doors swing on small hinges. Large doors swing on small hinges. And God, sometimes we miss it. We oftentimes are looking for the big picture. God uses the smallest little detail here and there so that there can be no misunderstanding that it's God working. Insignificant, small, those of no report, God uses. The purposes of God surpass the present situation. God is working and God will finish what he has started. I love that hymn by William, William Cooper. God works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. That last verse of that hymn, his purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. God is working. 
And God is working through these situations. And God has so ordered events that Ruth would be married to an Israelite. And that one little technical detail is going to speak volumes in the following chapters. Fifthly, God blessing. God blessing. Verse 6, Naomi hears in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. So now the cycle is back on the upswing again. God remembers his people are but dust, creatures of the earth. He does not deal with us according to our sins or rewarded us according to our iniquity. God is now bringing back the people to himself. He's turned away his hand of chastisement. And Naomi says what? The Lord has visited his people in giving them bread. Naomi attributes weather patterns and a harvest and, the, and the, the God's husbandry of the agriculture of Bethlehem. She attributes it all to God. She can look at a loaf of bread. She can look at a loaf of bread and say, this is God. God brought this about. God has visited his people. I really, this, this is a tremendous Hebrew word. And, and I've read in more than one occasions that pastors, I don't know if Pastor Chuck has heard this, but you're never supposed to give a word study while you're preaching a sermon. People don't care about the Greek. People don't care about the Hebrew. But this word visited is a wonderful word. God had visited his people. It doesn't mean to drop in, uh, to stay, stay a couple hours and then leave. This Hebrew word means to watch over and to commit to care. The Lord visited Sarah to give her life in the womb. Joseph, when he was in Egypt and put in charge of the house of Pharaoh, the Bible says he was made an overseer. Same word as visited, an overseer, ongoing care, concern, responsibility to take care of the situation. Joseph told his brethren that he was going to die. He said, God will visit you. We know that meant he would take care of them and get them out of the land and redemptively deliver them. The psalmist said, into thy hand I commit my spirit. Same word as visit. God was visiting his people. He would intersect their lives. He would invade them. He would come down, vertical drop from heaven to earth. God had visited them. And when we read that he was giving them physical bread, we can understand, we'll see later, that he was spiritually going to reinvigorate them and get them back on track. Very big deal. A very big deal when God visits his people. This must have been a big harvest. Naomi is 50 miles away in the country of Moab, and she hears that there's a, a, a God had visited his people. So with spiritual wisdom, we understand that uh, Naomi can satisfy her hunger back in her homeland. Um, but the spiritual mind, again, we understand if there is a gigantic harvest, is actually a wheat harvest and a barley harvest, but the spiritual mind understands the harvest is so big and so lengthy, then people who own fields like Boaz is going to need gleaners, going to need people to reap 
And God is going to insert Ruth into that whole scene to bring about his purpose. Lastly, Naomi determining. Verse 6, she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. I have to believe that Naomi had a twinge of conscience and understood that she did not belong in Moab. She was like the prodigal who came to his senses and said, they have enough bread to eat in my father's house. I will go there as a servant. I'll sleep in the open fields, but I need to be with my people, with my family, with my nation. And I think she had to realize this, this wandering away. I mean, it's, it's painful, it's awkward, there's regret, there's misery, there's sorrow. But I think she and, and, and others who have this realization that I've left following the Lord, though it's, it can be painful, it, it's a happy day. Because there's an awakening, if you will, to, to the, what the present life should be. A life with the Lord. A life with God's people. A blessed visitation. God is coming down with his grace and his goodness. This work of God. Where God sends awakening providences. God allows us to be under his chastening hand. To, to learn the lessons. God breaks up our nest. God does what he must do. We're made sorrowful. Uh, This is the way it was for Naomi. Her husband died. Her two sons are taken away. She's left with two Moabite daughter-in-law. What is she going to do with them? She's under the chastening hand of the Lord. She's going to go back to Bethlehem. She doesn't know what's going to await her there, except that God is once again visiting his people. And though there was a famine in Judah, spiritually speaking, there was a worse famine in Moab, wasn't there? And she was suffering for at least 10 years, a worse famine there. I asked Pastor Chuck if we could sing that song, Nearer to, Nearer My God to Thee. I think if Naomi knew that hymn, that was the melody of her heart, even though it be a cross that raises me nearer, my God, to thee. Though like the wanderer, the sun has gone down, that is, everything is dark. Darkness be over me, and my rest is a stone. Angels beckon me nearer, my God, to thee. And she's brought out, she will be brought out of this situation that is pressing, stressful. She's at odds with God. She's understanding the chastening hand of the Lord. She has a physical and a spiritual famine in her soul. And yet, there's this glimmer now of of light, this glimmer of hope. And what we're going to see, and these first six verses really kind of just paint a foundation, but what we're going to see from here on out is is just this opening of the gospel door where, where we see grace. And, and we see Boaz as a picture of Christ. And we see, we see this tremendous work of God that he had at his heart all along. Even though he had to use the failings of his people. Uh, even though uh, the things on the surface were very painful for the family. Yet he will bring life out of death. 
Nearer my God to thee. I think that was her theme. I think that is what she knew intuitively, she knew spiritually was where she needed to be. Again, God would use what he needed to do to get Ruth back to Bethlehem so she could be married to Boaz. God would do whatever it would take in our life to get us to Christ that we might be forever joined to the Lord. And Paul said, and though Ruth is a Moabitess under a curse, Paul put it this way, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not my beloved. And it will come to pass that in the place where I said unto them, you are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Only the miracle of grace can do that tremendous work. Well, may God be pleased to to write his word upon our heart. And again, as I mentioned in the coming months, we're going to see this gospel door just open tremendously wide. And we're going to see um, God's spiritual pictures, God's practical pictures, his moral pictures, all redounding to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that on every page we just see a tremendous work of grace. We see the tremendous, um, just the the tremendous um, way that you work in the lives of your people uh, to bring about their good and glory for yourself. Father, we do pray in the coming months that as we consider this book, that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds to the wonderful truth of the gospel of Christ and that you would bless your word, enabling us to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.